0: All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Lit. Neil, it's exciting to be part of this inaugural BioVerge podcast. Who have we got lined up today?
1: Thanks, Danny. And uh, I just want to say a big thanks to you and the Levine Media Group for producing the podcast today. We have Jonathan Thomas, who is the chairman of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, uh, which is a mouthful to say, so people generally refer to the organization as CIRM.
0: BioVerge's own genesis is in part tied to work you did at CIRM. How, How did it come about?
1: Yeah, that's right, Danny. So prior to BioVerge, I spent six years at CERM as part of the executive leadership team. Uh, I was the director of business development. Uh, the, the BDE position at CERM was, was fairly unique in that it was a mix of uh, what I would consider alliance management. I worked very closely with, uh, with our industry collaborators, uh, you know, venture capitalists, uh, investment partners, uh, as well as working closely with tech transfer offices at the various universities throughout California. Uh, you know, CIRM provided lots of funding to universities throughout California, as well as to a lot of biotech companies. Uh, by the time that I left CIRM, uh, uh there were a total of, uh, I think, 52 clinical trials that CERM was funding. Uh, so during my time there, I actually helped manage teams responsible for funding uh, the clinical stage programs. Uh, and at one point, I managed some of the, 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 the uh, I managed the team that oversaw some of CERM's infrastructure uh, programs as well.
0: You've also talked about a little girl named Evie you came across at CERM and and the influence she had on your decision to create BioVerge. Who's Evie and what role did she play?
1: Evie and her parents would come to our board meetings and they would talk about Evie's experience being treated with a gene therapy that CERM funded. Uh, This program was uh, out of UCLA in Dr. Donald Cohn's lab. Um, Evie was born with a a genetic disease uh, called um, severe combined immunodeficiency or SCID for short. Children born with SCID don't have functioning immune systems. Uh, They're frequently in and out of the hospital with severe infections. Uh, So at the age of one, Evie was treated with a gene therapy to replace the defective copy of the gene responsible for causing her disease. Fast forward eight years, Evie is now cured. She lives a normal life. She goes to school. All things that would have been previously impossible for Evie or any child born with SCID. Uh, and I believe to date, 50 other children have been treated based on this, um, this uh, technology that SARM has funded, and it, it's amazing. And so I would go uh, and tell my friends and my family, really anyone who listened to me uh, at the time, about this amazing technology that SARM had funded, and I would tell them about every story. And it really, I think, sounded like what I was saying was science fiction, but it was actually happening, and it was happening today. It was, it was science fact. Uh, It wasn't 10 years in the future. And so when I realized, what I realized at that time was most people aren't aware that this type of technology exists today and is having a dramatic impact on people's lives. So when I founded BioVerge, my goal was very simply to build awareness of these innovations that are happening today uh, within the healthcare sector that most people would consider science fiction. Uh, And I wanted to create a platform to allow people to support these types of innovations, uh, because at the end of the day, we're all patients at some point in our lives. And as we all know, health is universal.
0: CIRM just secured $5.5 billion in bond funding from California voters, extending the life of the Institute well into the future. How big a role did JT play in shaping CIRM and securing its future? You
1: know, I think JT's played a major role in securing the future of CIRM. Uh, you know, there's been uh, a lot of controversy surrounding CIRM Uh, Since uh, 2004, when the Institute was first established, there's been a a lot of, uh, you know, conflicts or perceived conflicts uh, at the board level. Uh, And a lot of us surrounded a lot of board members come from the Institute, uh, come from organizations that receive some funding. Uh, And so there's there's been a lot written about, you know, perceived conflicts of interest, uh, funding going to organizations where there is uh, board support uh, from those organizations uh, who vote where the funding is going. You know, JT took over at a time when the Institutes of Medicine had, uh, had released a report uh, that uh, indicated that there were a lot of, of, of these conflicts that were pervasive uh, at the board level. And so JT, uh, as one of his first tasks, really cleaned up a lot of those issues, uh, put in place new measures at the board level to recuse uh, board members uh, from voting on, on certain grants where there may be a conflict. Uh, and so I think that really uh, served to increase the credibility of SORM as an organization uh, and, and really served to put a lot of the controversy that had surrounded the organization in its early days behind CIRM. Um So I think, you know, a lot of that is to his credit. And so I think it really did clear the path to refocus Serum's energy on what really mattered. And um, that was, you know, funding programs that can ultimately help uh, cure patients of a variety of different diseases.
0: If we're all set, why don't we talk to JT? That sounds great.
1: JT, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on the recent success of Prop 14.
2: Glad to join you. Thanks very much for the invitation.
1: My pleasure. Uh, JT, the campaign for extending the funding of CIRM was far more low-key than I anticipated, and certainly much more so than the original ballot initiative in 2004. There wasn't the context of a big national debate driving it this time around. Were you surprised that it passed with as little controversy as it appeared to?
2: Well, it didn't have the same sort of controversy, but it had its own issues, to be sure. Uh, The biggest one, of course, being that the COVID-driven economic difficulties at the state uh, made this a year, last year, a year that uh, was not the greatest to bring a bond measure to the ballot, which would involve adding to uh, the state debt. Uh, on the the other side of the coin, uh, the subject matter of the proposition, which was curing disease, uh, was something that was clearly on everybody's top of mind. And and really, what it boiled down to was which was going to prevail uh, as between those two macro factors when the voters went out to vote. And very happily for patients everywhere, uh, the Curing disease side uh, prevailed, although certainly not by very much. But in terms of the the levels of controversy that surrounded things like embryonic stem cell research, etc., uh, those were not there uh, nearly as they were, as you note, in 2004. But it was, wasn't without its difficulties, that's for sure, as evidenced by the fact that it. Past 5149 compared to 5941 back in 2004.
1: And what will this new funding mean for CIRM and how should voters measure the ultimate success of CIRM?
2: Well, first and foremost, uh, if you go back to Prop 71, CIRM enabled a, uh, a then fledgling industry to uh, really accelerate in a a major way over the the first 16 years of CIRM's existence. The $3 billion was a tremendous amount of funding to have available. And through that, we were able to make grants that led to uh, 68 clinical trials. Uh, We funded another 33 projects that were uh, funded in their clinical trials through other sources. But if you add that, we are around 100 projects that have made it to the clinical trial stage, which by any account is a great result. Uh, I think if you were to sort of build upon that and and say, what does the the additional funding mean that we're going to be able to further accelerate the field, Uh, we'll continue all of our Core programs uh, that we've had that have been so successful, which would be the basic research, which we call discovery, the translational research, which, for those not familiar with the terminology, simply means uh, the gap, bridging the gap between a basic research discovery and getting into human clinical trials and the clinical trials themselves. Uh, We have a number of other programs which we can get into if you'd like, but those are are the ones that are the biggest drivers. And to have the additional amount of money means to take uh, all of of, uh, that uh, work and take it to the next level. Five and a half billion dollars should carry the agency for another 10 to 15 years. And during that time, there will be. Any number of major developments in the field that CERN will be squarely in the middle of and instrumental in making happen. Uh, the, the the trying to remember your second question was Neil, what the the, the bottom the second half of that?
1: Yeah, how should voters think about measuring the success oh, of CERN?
2: Sure, okay, so uh, that's a great question. Uh, voters in general have to understand that science takes time so uh, when CERM first passed as I said the field of regenerative medicine was really in its infancy uh, the most of the science that was getting funded was at the earliest stages and since that time many of those have made it uh, on to the clinical trial phase but to date uh, very few uh, have made it all the way through to commercialization uh, that's not to say that that is uh, in any sense of failure, uh, Quite the contrary, the clinical trials and the pipeline of projects behind it uh, are, are positioning California and the field for great successes as these work their way through. So uh, at the moment, uh, I would measure success by that sort of metric. Uh, as we get further down the road, another 10 to 15 years, you're going to see many of the projects, uh, that do uh, pan out, and mind you, all, science is such that not everything is going to work uh, by any means, but some of it will, and we're driving towards cures as well as therapies that will fundamentally alter the nature of the uh, the treatment for the diseases in question and change the lives of the patients and their families uh, who have to deal with these conditions on an ongoing basis. So I, I would, would urge the, uh, the voters, as you sort of look back in retrospect, to sort of see the whole body of work over two iterations of CERM to see what we've actually enabled. And I think that you'll see that it will be a, a very significant body of work that will greatly contribute to uh, treatments and cures.
1: And JT, I think that's a a great reminder that, you know, science does take time to develop. Um, Just to dive into that point a little bit, and you had mentioned this, but the field has matured significantly since uh, SIRM was first established back in uh, 2004. We've moved uh, well beyond basic research. Uh, There's now a rich clinical pipeline. Uh, We're starting to see potential uh, therapies emerge um, both certainly in in the clinical stage, but hopefully towards the commercialization stage here over the next decade or so. Uh, what is the expected mix of CERM investment uh, if you break it down between basic science versus clinical development or between academic scientists and biotech biopharma companies?
2: So uh, if you look back at the first iteration of CERM uh, under proposition seventy one, uh, the three billion, of which 2.7 billion give or take was actually uh, put out to fund research, about 900 million of that went to basic research, uh, which was the, the biggest chunk uh, of, of all. Uh, and uh, towards the end of the first iteration, uh, when we were running low on funds, we were, uh, had a, a bit of a shift of emphasis, to funding more uh, in the clinical trial side, because we wanted to position projects to get through that as soon as possible. Uh, and so we, we had a a, a a bit more weight given on the clinical trial side of the ledger. Coming back now to $5.5 uh, additional funding, uh, we fully expect that we'll be giving uh, very large amounts of funding to the entire research spectrum, starting again with basic research, which is, after all, where all this stuff begins. Uh, but we'll also have more and more projects getting to the clinical trial phase. So, and, and then plenty of stuff in the middle in the translational phase. So I think you'll see a, quite a, a mix. Uh, of uh of phases that we will fund if you were to to go on our website sort of a, a secondary question is how does it break down in terms of the funding we've given to uh different research for different types of diseases uh You'll, you'll notice that uh, amongst the, the biggest allocation was to neurological disorders, roughly 25% or so, as I recall, uh, went to those. Uh, you, you will see in the language of Prop 14 that of the 5.5, a, a billion and a half of that is earmarked for neurological conditions, a uh, little which is a little bit more of a, a percentage than we funded, uh, but that's going to be something that gets... Particular emphasis, and I think that's reflective of the fact that uh, the uh, in in the regenerative medicine space, the neurological conditions have been amongst the toughest uh, toughest nuts to crack. Uh, and there, uh, certain of the conditions lend themselves to uh, to easier quote unquote nothing's easy but easier research than others. Uh, And as a whole, that category just requires a lot more funding. So that's why a billion and a half was carved out for that. Uh, But I think you'll see uh, in this, uh, the five and a half, you'll see uh, a great deal of it will go towards prevalent conditions, uh, meaning heart disease, cancer, plus the neurological vision disorders, etc. But as with Prop 71, a great deal will also go towards uh, rare conditions uh, that that don't have the funding that a lot of the larger conditions have. Uh, part of what we were set up to do was to fund the part of the research spectrum that uh, the uh, that other places weren't. So NIH funds certain types of things, and CIRM uh, tries to figure out where it can make the biggest impact by funding those projects that don't necessarily get the same sort of funding that some others do. So we're, we're, we're pretty uh, specific about that. Um, but also going forward, Neil, I think you'll see, uh, an increased emphasis, uh, in the regenerative medicine space on gene therapy, uh, in, in the, Prop 71. There was most of the focus was on stem cell research itself, with some attention to gene therapy and some uh, hybrid projects that use both. And I think you'll see more uh, of the gene therapy uh, products uh, that will be uh, funded here. With respect to your question about academia versus biotech companies and industry. Uh, In the earliest days, uh, because there were no real products getting anywhere near commercialization, a vast percentage of the funding went to academia with very little going to companies. But as time has passed and companies have spun out from academia uh, in an increasing pace uh, and other companies have, have, have established themselves sort of from scratch, We've seen a, a gradual transition and the ratio of academ- academia awards to industry awards has uh, leveled off where it's it's somewhat comparable at this point. And we would envision as more and more companies set up that uh, the percentage going to industry will continue to increase.
1: JT, there's a lot to dive into there. Um, as an as a initial follow-up question – uh, you had mentioned expanding the scope of uh, funding for CIRM going forward. So, as the institute, as the institute's name suggests, right, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, there there may be a broader focus than just stem cells. Uh, I know under Prop 71, there was a, a specific focus on on stem cells. Does the the new proposition expand the scope of what CERM is able to fund going forward with the new $5.5 billion?
2: Yes, it does. I mean, it specifically mentions gene therapy. Uh, it mentions uh, sort of a broad term, genetic research, which is uh, going to, as, as it it will be applied, will refer to genetic research that is uh, apropos of regenerative medicine, not just sort of genetic research writ large. Uh, there is uh, this category of what we call vital research opportunities, which in Prop 71 was employed very sparingly. Uh, and these are things that are a, a little outside the scope of, of what the proposition provided for that we think are Still consistent with the mission uh, in the in the first go around, I think we only had two. One was a gene therapy project, and the other was uh, last summer when we had a a, uh, a a small but I think quite remarkable round for covid related projects uh, One of those went to a convalescent plasma uh grant. Um, which uh, was deemed the so-called vital research opportunity. The, the new initiative uh, suggests that the scope of what can come under vital research opportunity uh, will uh, be larger, but that's largely up to the board to define. And I'm sure there'll be lots of discussion on what that means. Uh, and we will, uh, having done that, then be able to instruct our peer reviewers who are the ones who review the grants at first blush before recommending them for approval by the board have to give them direction on what vital research opportunities can mean, et cetera. So I I do think you will see an expanded scope, but it's all going to be uh, under the evolving uh, uh, name of regenerative medicine. Now, one of the things uh, that is going to be very interesting is the, the things that go into the projects and the type of projects as a function of new developments in the field that don't exist today. Uh, so uh, if you go back to 2004, when Prop 71 was passed, there have been uh, a number of very significant developments in the field, one of which Uh, was uh, the advent of induced pluripotent stem cells, which for your listening audience that's not familiar with that term uh, is a remarkable thing. Um, This was uh, something that uh, a a fellow who's uh, at the University of Kyoto and jointly at the Gladstone Institute uh, posed the question, if you took an adult stem cell, Is there a way to expose it to some sort of combination of proteins that would in effect reverse engineer it back to embryonic stage, so-called pluripotent stage, where the the cells are basically able to convert to anything in the body? And so uh, interestingly enough, he Came up with a four protein cocktail that uh, did the trick either with adult stem cells, I'm sorry, adult uh, uh, stem cells from your skin or from your blood. Uh, it would reverse engineer them back to pluripotent stage, hence the name induced pluripotent stem cells, and then you could reprogram them with other proteins to become something that you wanted to do additional research on, the most prominent thing being uh, neurons. Uh, so you'd have, if you took somebody who had a neurological condition like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, and you created these induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, you reprogrammed them to become neurons in a dish. The neurons then could be uh, exposed to high-throughput drug screening to see if there were any drugs or combination of drugs out there that could have uh, a, a materially positive effect on the cells as as they were in the dish. Uh, and it, it's, you think of it as the, the disease itself, because it's the, the patient's cells are, as the origin manifest into the disease in the dish so that you get something that has an impact on it, then you can use that as the basis for clinical trials to test further as a way of of seeing if you've really got something that's therapeutic or curative. Uh, And you'd say, well, that's all kind of complicated. Why would you do that? The reason is if you take something like Alzheimer's as an example, uh, there are lots of drugs you think might do something for Alzheimer's, but the FDA would never let you Try to use those drugs uh, to uh, because it'd be wouldn't be safe be bombarding patients with numerous drugs one after another, so that just doesn't happen. But if you recreate their condition in a petri dish and use the drugs there to see if there's an impact on the condition in the in the dish itself, uh, then you really got something. And that's kind of the the biggest single use that will come out of uh, these induced pluripotent stem cells. And so look for a lot more, uh, based on that in the future. Uh, that work was so revolutionary that the the scientist, uh, Shinya Yamanaka got the Nobel prize in about five years, which for those of you keeping track know that, uh, that normally takes 30 to 40 years to get a Nobel, uh, So that was a development. A second development that nobody expected was the whole uh, area of gene editing, uh, which uh, goes best by its acronym CRISPR, which I'm sure most of your audience is familiar with, uh, where uh, building off the ability in the early 2000s to sequence the entire human genome and an ability to actually uh, identify mutations that drive certain diseases uh, all the way down to the base pairs, uh, for those who remember their high school biology. uh, Because you know which base pairs are, uh, are responsible for a given mutation that drives a disease, this technology, which is super powerful, allows you to go in and literally edit out those base pairs and either substitute in correct base pairs or uh, or do other things. And this gene editing then uh, permits you to uh, uh, give the, the patient a chance to actually uh, uh, get back to a normal condition uh, Giving an example of this, uh, at UCLA, uh, Don Cohn is one of their researchers who CIRM has funded a number of times over the years. uh, worked uh, on young children with a condition colloquially known as bubble baby disease, uh, scientifically severe combined immunodeficiency or SCID, uh, which is the result of a single mutation, and he was able to take uh, the blood forming stem cells out of a child's bone marrow which is where they reside and uh, do what they do to create your blood uh, and do gene edit out that uh, mutation and put the blood forming stem cells back into the child's bone marrow. And whereas before they had no functioning immune system, uh, hence the bubble baby, they had to live in quarantine from birth. Uh, this allowed these kids to generate normal bloodstreams with fully functioning immune systems. And uh, Dr. Cohn has done this with over 50 kids, all of which are healthy and, in, 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 uh, in school and they get sick and nobody cares. Whereas before I could have killed them. So it was a major, major, major thing. So gene editing is a, a, a very potent development In California, Jennifer Doudna up at UC Berkeley uh, was uh, the, uh, along with a a a co-worker, uh, was uh, the discoverer of CRISPR, uh, and for that uh, they got the Nobel Prize as well, uh, which is a very big deal, uh, obviously, and again in a very short time period. So you get these major developments that come up. And so going forward, you know, what's the, the next big thing like that that's going to come up? And obviously, we don't know as we sit here, but we can say that it, it's going to revolutionize the field, all these things as they come along. And uh, so uh, further answer to your question, what does this mean for the future? Uh, that will inform uh, that as well.
1: It it certainly feels like the pace of innovation is accelerating within the field. Um, JT, I I did want to ask about um, the infrastructure that CIRM has supported um, throughout its history. So if we think back to the creation of CIRM, it was really necessitated by federal restrictions at the time on embryonic stem cell research. So one of the consequences of that for our listeners was that researchers uh, actually needed to be uh, in separate labs to conduct embryonic stem cell research. From any facilities that were operating with federal funding at the time. So that meant a lot of CIRM's initial funding went into infrastructure programs to house and support this type of research. Uh, JT, could you uh, just comment on um, how that infrastructure has paid off for uh, establishing California as a leader in in the field? Uh, And then also any expectations of uh, continuing investment in infrastructure going forward with the new funding?
2: So uh, you're you're absolutely right. The there was a need to segregate the the areas of research uh, from uh, anything that would be funded by NIH or uh, federal government. So in the early days, CIRM spent about I think it was about 270 million of the three billion on 12 different research institutes up and down the state. Uh, which uh, varied from new freestanding buildings like you would see uh, uh, at uh, at USC, for example, uh, or at the Buck Institute up in Novato in Northern California, uh, or it took the form of refurbished existing uh, facilities uh, such as was done at, at UCLA. Uh, there was scrupulous uh, record-keeping to make sure that there was no use of federal funding in these labs. Uh, And what happened was because it it set up these state-of-the-art world-class labs, uh, it, it was an additional source of incentive for scientists to move to California to have access to these facilities as well as to be able to apply for funding that, uh, with 3 billion in hand was uh, a lot more available than anywhere else. So, uh, that, uh, as, as those, uh, facilities and programs continue to develop, uh, it, it just led to a, uh, a world class, uh, it, it, it already, there were a lot of wonderful scientists here obviously beforehand, but it's, been able to magnify and amplify upon that, and so the you've got all these uh, programs now that that in the aggregate are uh, second to none in terms of a, a, a body of scientific work, uh, and so that uh, has been uh, very successful, uh, and that's not only created an e- ecosystem for science to flourish, but it's generated already a lot of economic benefits to the state in the form of various tax revenues, etc. Uh, and of course, as uh, therapies and cures start to develop and and we can take uh, treatment of disease uh, off the roles of the Medicare's, Medicaid's of the world, you'll uh, begin to see even greater economic benefits. So uh, it, it all sort of started at the beginning but it, it's it just continues to snowball with all these uh, all these benefits um, second question again Neil uh, uh,
1: continuing investment in infrastructure going forward
2: okay so uh, that I, I I'm certain the answer to that is yes there's going to be more uh, the board is in the the earliest stages of uh, of analyzing uh, and developing the next strategic plan uh, to cover the we, we do them in five year increments uh, So uh, 2021 is year one of the next plan. so we're working very hard with uh, as the effort being led by our CEO dr. Maria Milan uh, on uh, on figuring out what that's going to entail. almost certainly there will be more uh, more infrastructure, Uh, in the form of facilities. But that uh, also uh, sort of uh, is a term that we use to describe certain of our programs, uh, which are uh, some of the more noteworthy ones. Uh, I mentioned the induced pluripotent stem cells. So uh, we've set up a, it's IPS for short, uh, set up an IPS cell bank where we took Uh, 2,500 lines of uh, of IPS uh, cells, uh, covering uh, a large number of different sorts of diseases, and we've established a cell bank where they're all kept and are and are made available to researchers to use. Um, And in addition, uh, we formed a collaboration with the Broad Institute in uh in cambridge which is you know is the made up from mit and harvard uh and they're taking the the cell lines as we've uh we've banked them and doing genetic sequencing on them and so that's an additional set of data that's available to the public for research so that was one big what we call infrastructure project Uh, another is uh Uh, in the field of genomics, uh, which gets down to uh, determining uh, genetic sequence and function uh, of uh, lots of different diseases. Uh, We have a a genomics center that we funded uh, at various places throughout California, which are generating tons of data, which are being analyzed by the data core of that program at UC Santa Cruz under David Hassler uh that again is making a large uh body of, of data and information available to the public for research purposes a third infrastructure project uh we call the uh the the alpha stem cell clinic network uh and what that is simply is uh, uh at currently at, at at 5 different uh universities uh we we have uh, these clinics, which are meant to provide soup to nuts treatment for uh, clinical trials for various stem cell uh, uh, stem cell projects, whether they're funded by CIRM or not. So it, it starts with uh, uh, going out and finding the patients for these clinical trials, uh, and then having the the uh, facilities to be able to undertake the trials themselves, um, work all the way through that with the patients, uh, all of which is towards developing the whatever the treatment is of the condition at issue. Uh, this network shares uh, a number of, of features which give it economies of scale. Uh, it's, it's as far as I know really the only one like it in the world. Uh, And it serves as a uh, uh, valuable not only for itself, but uh, it it also is in direct contrast with the proliferating snake oil stem cell clinics that have arisen uh, throughout the world, really. But certainly there are a ton of them in California, which promise this and that for exorbitant amounts of money and don't deliver uh, and are... uh, Frankly, very dangerous uh, and expensive, um, and uh, our network is set up to to be what I define as the right way to go uh, as compared to these others. Uh, I should say in the new measure, Neil, uh, there in addition to adding more alpha stem cell clinics, there's a provision to provide something called community care centers of excellence, uh, which are meant to be, uh, for lack of a better expression, satellite clinic sites out in more rural areas or underserved parts of the community that wouldn't have access and or, or be able to get into the trials at these five sites. And this is meant to give uh, much greater accessibility to state residents to uh, be able to participate in these trials. Uh, and that's something that we're starting to discuss and figure out how to implement, and we'll be taking lots of stakeholder input on from members of the public and other interested parties as we plan that out. So the, the infrastructure as, as between the facilities and these other infrastructural programs I think you'll find uh, uh, only increasing as we go forward, which uh, serve to uh, further enhance the, the whole effort
1: and JT you know I, I think it's it's pretty clear that you know you've helped navigate uh CIRM through enormous periods of change over the years On uh, if i if i remember correctly you joined in 2011 and and your tenure will be coming coming up uh, to an end uh, next year after about a decade on the job as you think back what are you proudest about
2: well at first i i'm i'm proudest of, of i'd say uh having the privilege to be able to work with uh, an incredible team of which you were a member for many years uh, at CIRM, uh, an incredible slate of scientific talent throughout the state uh, and being part of the, the fabric of regenerative medicine research uh, nationally and internationally. So uh, I just state that privilege at the outset. Uh, I think the, uh, what I, I, I would say I'm most proud of is, uh, taking the reins from Bob Klein, uh, who came up with the idea for Prop 71, got it on the ballot, got it, uh, uh, passed and served as the first chair of the board, uh, and, uh, which was a, the CIRM itself is a tremendous paradigm shift in the way you fund medical research, taking his vision and, and, and doing the best I could to uh, continue his work uh, and the work of the board to that point and the work of the team to that point and to take it to uh, higher uh, levels uh, based on the development of the research and, uh, and, and just the, uh, and and really continuing CERM as the the trendsetter in the world for this sort of thing. Uh, nobody had this sort of funding. Nobody had the scientific base. Um, we were very lucky in California. This is a sort of frontier mentality state that that uh, saw fit to uh, enable CERM to form and to do what it does. And and I think there are lots of sort of. Uh, Smaller triumphs along the way, but I just say uh, the the ability to uh, continue improving the process, uh, getting better and better projects funded, uh, and having positioned um, the world really for uh, a number of therapies and cures that are going to come down the road as a result of what CIRM's done. That'll have tremendous benefit to patients everywhere.
1: That's clearly a, a lot to be proud of, J.T. And, and as you look forward, uh, given your experience, what, what do you think the biggest challenges are going to be? And what advice would you give to whomever may be your successor?
2: Well, the, the immediate challenge is uh, we have a, a number of new, uh, new programs to implement uh, uh, as uh, part of the, uh, the CIRM effort courtesy of the new proposition. So uh, how to be able to do that in a way that's efficient and continues uh, what uh, CIRM to move along in, in what really is now a, a very well-oiled machine. Uh, and so uh, we wanna make sure that there's a sort of seamless transition into the larger scale program Envisioned by the proposition, and that's not uh, a simple thing. It's it's going to require uh, the, the 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 excellent CERN team uh, led by Dr. Milan to continue to do what it does and to uh, to integrate all these new programs and the board to provide guidance and how to prioritize and and best implement etc. cetera. Uh, not not easy. But uh, uh, the, the entire CERM team, uh, writ large, uh, I think is very well positioned to do that. Uh, we're going to be adding new people. We had to sort of slim down because we didn't know if we were going to have money or not until the vote. Uh, we're going to be regrouping and adding a number of people to uh Get back to where we were. Uh, plus, we've got additional folks we'll have to hire for some of the new programs. Um, so all of that's going to be a, a major logistical challenge. But I, I'm sure we're up to it, and um, uh, and so I, I, uh, we w- we will succeed. Uh, on the question of what would I say to a successor, uh, it's uh, just to uh, appreciate what you're. Uh, inheriting in terms of the the program and the operation in place, uh, and to go forward uh, with an, an eye open to uh, how to to integrate all of the incredible developments that are yet to come to make the uh, the 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 whole Serm experience uh, continue to uh, improve and uh, and the ability to, uh, have the ability to, to, uh, increase the, the access and affordability for patients to therapies and cures as they're developed. Uh, everything is about the patients. That's what everyone's here for. Uh, and so it's all got to be with a mind about them. So the, The increased role of the patients in everything we do, which they are considerably involved in at this point, Uh, the increased attraction of getting more and more scientific talent to California, all of these things are challenges that the successor and the board and the team will face going forward, but I'm fully confident that they will be able to build on what we've got uh, and make it even better.
1: And I, I think, JT, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think Prop 14 uh, is, is really just a major victory for for patients. Um, and so I think that's really exciting uh, what the new funding will be able to pr- provide over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, and with that, I would like to thank Jonathan Thomas, chairman of the Independent Citizens Oversight Committee, which oversees the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. JT, thank you so much for your time and for being with us on the show today.
2: Well, thank you, Neil. And I just want to uh, point out for your listeners that you are our uh, head of, of business development as well as a number of other things while you were there for five or six years, as I recall, and uh, you did a wonderful job to uh, to increase our visibility and in- increase access to industry uh, and all that's connected to that. So I wanted to thank you for all you did while you were there and uh, continue Wish you continued best of luck in your current endeavor.
1: Thank you, JT. I, I appreciate that. You know, t- to this day, when people ask about my, my time at CERM, I always describe CERM as a, a very unique and wonderful place. Uh, and it's, it's, in fact, inspired me to do so much more uh, throughout, throughout my career. And, and take I took a lot of learnings from my time at CERM. So it was, it was a real privilege to work at such a great institute and, and as you said, work with such great colleagues, including yourself.
2: Well, thank you. And uh, thanks again for the opportunity to speak to your listeners.
0: Yeah, that was uh, quite a conversation.
1: Yeah, th- thanks, Danny. I think that the conversation with JT was just wide ranging. And I, I think, you know, hopefully it gives listeners a, a nice overview of just how far CERM has come uh, since the Institute was first established back in 2004. Uh, and you, you heard JT talk about the wide range of funding that CERM provided. And initially, a lot of the funding went to the basic research, basic biology on infrastructure programs. If you think back to the federal ban on embryonic stem cell research, CERM had to spend, uh, I think JT mentioned, $270 million on building out infrastructure and lab space to house researchers who are working on uh, embryonic stem cell programs, because uh, funds could not be commingled with labs that have, had received NIH funding, for example. Um, and so, if you think about how much the science has advanced since then, it's it's sort of amazing to think about um, some of the innovations that have taken place. And and JT talked about the um, you know Nobel Prize being awarded uh, back in uh, I think it was 2012 to uh, Shinya and Yamanaka for uh, the creation of induced pluripotent stem cells or IPS cells. I mean, that's just created an explosion in the field uh, in terms of the breadth and uh, you know potential types of therapies that can be developed uh, based on, on stem cells. Uh, And then you also heard JT talk a lot about uh, gene therapy programs and in particular the program from UCLA, which, which was very inspiring to me when I was at CIRM. Um, And so I think as you, as you look forward, I was really excited to hear that the breadth of the types of technologies that CIRM has leeway to fund going forward has, has broadened and has increased. So I think the future is, is really bright in the field of regenerative medicine, uh, and that's, you know, that's cell therapy, that's gene therapy. Um, and then, of course, CERN funds a lot of enabling technologies to support uh, the development of new types of therapies that aren't even on our radar yet. So I think that's really exciting.
0: It's kind of interesting in that it's been freed up to live up to its name now that it has the ability to move beyond just stem cells. As you think about the the landscape of everything from cell therapy to gene editing, what excites you most? What do you think the biggest opportunities are?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, around um, this idea of programming medicine. Right or engineering biology. So if 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 we think back to sort of the recent history of medicine, you know, you, you can look at the, you know the biotech industry was born uh, with the advent of, of insulin, basically, and that was in I think 1978. Uh, you know, you fast forward to the first cell therapy that was approved, which was in uh, I believe it was 2017, uh, right? A, a CAR T therapy to treat patients with uh, with with blood cancer. If you think about where we are now and where we're going, we we are really in essence, able to rewrite the code of, of life. And so that's things like programming cells to uh, attack cancer cells. Uh, and right now, it's, it's not, I don't want to say limited to blood cancer, uh, but those have been the proof therapies. There's a lot of work being done with targeting those cells to solid tumors as well. Uh, if you think about the field of, of gene, uh, gene editing uh, and gene therapy, you heard JT mention that uh, you know, gene editing can address, and gene therapy can address, you know, 10,000 monogenic diseases that are out there. And so I think the future is very bright. Um, and so we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what's possible. Uh, and the other topic which JT mentioned was the IPS uh, cell phenomenon and so induced pluripotent stem cells hold tremendous potential we we've already seen that they've been adopted uh, by you know the industry by academia for a lot of preclinical work a lot of toxicology type work for testing uh, drugs i think the next wave and we're seeing a lot of you know small companies pursuing these these types of innovations will be in using ips cells as an actual therapy and not just as a preclinical screening tool so i think those are some areas that 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 i'm particularly excited about
0: that was a great start, Neil, and uh, look forward to continuing this. Thanks, Danny. Uh, I'm excited for for this new
1: podcast series. I think you know, just to our listeners, you can expect a, a whole host of of guests with a wide ranging experience in the healthcare sector uh, that are that are really working to bring science fiction to life. So stay tuned.
0: Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc. Investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. Bioverge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation, from family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non accredited individuals. To learn more, go to Bioverge.com. This podcast is produced for Bioverge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.